Great to have you with us this morning. We are in uh, a study of the Gospel of Matthew. We are currently in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are studying the Beatitudes. And we, the first four focus upon our relationship to God, and then the fifth one this morning, the last four, will focus not only upon God, but our relationship to other people, and we will begin the one on mercy, on mercy. Thank you, Claude, for reading that text to us in Matthew chapter 18. There are several interrelated terms in that. Have patience with me. Patience is related to mercy. Forgiveness is related uh, to mercy. And we are reminded that how great a debt we have been forgiven. And that should make us a merciful people. Lord God in heaven above, we look to you this morning. We need mercy and grace far more than we realize. Thank you for the great throne of grace and mercy. You have bid us to come before you to receive mercy, which should remind us that we are still a people in distress, distressed by our own sins, distressed by the sins around us, distressed by a fallen world. And so we pray this morning that you will increase our love for you and these beatitudes in your people for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Giving what we have received, mercy. We put the beatitudes, beat, beatus, blessed in proper perspective. We realize you're not doing these things to get into the kingdom of heaven. You are doing them because of Matthew 3.17. You have repented of your sin. If you have repented of your sin and you have trusted Jesus Christ, these are true in your life to some degree, and they should be increasing. Blessed is a statement of divine approval when we look at Luke's version, shortened version of the Beatitudes. The opposite of blessing is curse, is woe, these heart conditions. We looked at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not poor in your bank account, but poor in your attitude before God. As a matter of fact, that particular word for poor is expressive of bankruptcy, of deep poverty. So when we come before God, one of the characteristics or attributes of the people of God is that we have recognized we have nothing to commend ourselves before God. And those who have recognized that, who entrusted that, we have the assurance that ours is the kingdom of heaven. And furthermore, this is not a simply recognition before God to come into his presence through repentance and forgiveness of sin, 
but poor in spirit should be an ongoing characteristic of our life. John chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So there should be an ongoing dependence upon God, and we should recognize we are continually poor in spirit. The second one, we mourn. It doesn't say what we mourn, oh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. But it's clear, looking at the context of Scripture, the Old Testament, which has about 67 of these blessings, we mourn over our own sin, and we mourn over the sin of others. We mourn over a fallen world and its opposition uh, to God. Third, then... uh, There is divine approval for the meek. Uh, That word is hard to convey in one English word, but it certainly has the idea of gentleness, of humility. Psalm 37 expressed the kind of character of a meek person. It's one who trusts God in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution. And we don't try and return evil for evil, but we trust God that he will ultimately vindicate us. Fourth, we hunger and thirst for moral righteousness. Um, All right, I skipped one. The guy that put the PowerPoint together was half asleep when he did this, evidently. Fourth is hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and that righteousness in... Matthew is a little different expression than for Paul in terms of the gospel, the righteousness revealed from heaven, and that is righteousness from Christ. Here, the hungering and thirsting after righteousness, righteousness as we looked at, is always a standard, and it's God's standard, and so we're desiring to be conformed to God's moral standard as we live this life, increasingly. And that standard was perfectly expressed in the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there Paul does put it, to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness is to be conformed to the image of his own dear Son. We come to this attribute or this characteristic of mercy then, and there are three that are interrelated, and they're all part of the goodness of God. Mercy and grace and patience are all part of his goodness. And the reason why I say that is in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. Remember what Moses asked God. He said, Moses, or God, show me your glory. Kavod, your importance, your weight. He wanted to see a visible manifestation of it. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will be merciful to those whom I desire to be merciful, and I will be compassionate. So there's two things that are tied up there. Number one is God's goodness, but it's also God's sovereignty. Whenever we lose sight of either the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God, we have stepped outside of biblical bounds. And so I would say that 
grace, mercy, and uh, patience are all expressions of the goodness of God. We have grace. We, when we are looking at grace, we talk about God's unmerited goodness to those who deserve the wages of sin and eternal punishment, eternal wrath. Mercy is God's unmerited goodness to those in misery and in distress. And then patience is God's unmerited goodness in temporarily withholding judgment over an extent of time. All sinners, when we come to this world, what we deserve is judgment, we deserve wrath, we deserve the wages of sin, but even for all in His common grace, God withholds the judgment that we deserve. We have an opportunity when the gospel is proclaimed to respond to Him in faith and trust and turn from our sin and embrace the Savior. But if we do not do that, eventually His wrath will fall and there will be no longer an opportunity. Thomas Watson in his wonderful book on the Beatitudes says, Mercifulness is a melting disposition whereby we lay to heart the miseries of others and are ready on all occasions to be instrumental for their good. Mercy deals with the results of sin in terms of misery, pain, and distress. It relieves the misery, helps the wretched. Grace deals with the sin and the guilt itself. Grace pardons, it cleanses, it re-estates. Both believers and unbelievers need grace and mercy, and that's why we have a throne of grace to go before God to receive mercy and find strengthening grace in time of need. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, briefly, to the parable there. of the Good Samaritan, because of common grace and because we are all made imago dei in the image of God, we all have a responsibility to be merciful to one another. And we find that in the parable of the Good Samaritan uh, introduced in Luke 10, 25. A lawyer, this is a nomikos, he's an expert in the Mosaic law and he stood up to Jesus, actually to test him, to try and um, show that um, he wasn't all that he said. And he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he knew. He's an expert in the Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now notice, desiring to justify himself, to declare himself right before God, he says, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In other words, uh, looking back at the Old Testament, he would say, my neighbor is my Jewish people. Uh, it is people who are like me. It is people 
who are ethnically like me. And so we have the parable of the good Samaritan. A man went down from Jerusalem, Jericho, fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him dead. And who comes along first? The priest. Saw him over there, passed by. Levite comes along, saw him over there, passed by. And here comes a Samaritan, despised, half-breed, despised by the Jews. And he saw him, and he had compassion. That's the word there for mercy. When you see the words compassion and mercy, they're synonyms for one another. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine and set him on his animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave the innkeeper money to take care of him. And so Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And so the expert in the Old Testament law says, the one who showed him mercy. In other words, mercy... It's not just to have a feeling for someone in distress, but it's to do something about it. The previous trip when we were in Germany, I think it was in Cologne, and we got off the bus, we had to go underneath an underpass, and we're going to see this uh, huge cathedral. And he was, a, he was a young man. I don't know. I'm taking a guess. He was probably in his 20s. He was passed out. He's lying underneath there. Um, he had soiled himself, and uh, people were just walking past, and we walked past, and my wife nudged me, and she said, don't you think we should do something? Is he breathing? I, I, I stopped, and I, yes, he's, he's breathing. I said, okay, we're going to walk around here, and then we're going to come back down, and I'll find a policeman and get somebody to come over and and uh, take him wherever he needs to be taken. So we did, came back around. Either um, someone else already had, or else he regained his, his consciousness and walked off. I don't know. But when you, when you look at someone like that, and you look at the distress, and you look at the misery that you're in, it's not only having sympathy for them, but it's also doing something about them. And notice... To whom does Jesus say, you go and do likewise? He's telling here a man who, by all appearances in this text, is not a believer. He hasn't trusted Christ. He's trying to justify himself. So we all, because of common grace, being created in the image of God, we all have a moral responsibility to show mercy to one another. Now, there is a caveat here in terms of showing mercy and compassion. An unbeliever does not have the ability, the capacity, to extend what Thomas Watson calls soul mercy found in the gospel. In other words, how can, he, how can an unbeliever have compassion on Another unbeliever, if he doesn't know the gospel, he doesn't know what to tell him. He may have compassion for his physical infirmities, for the difficulties, the straits, but he does not have a recognition even of his own miserable condition before God. 
Genuine grace and mercy always operate in the sphere of truth. In other words, we have evil called good and good called evil today. And so I am told, you're not a merciful person if you don't have, and it's usually put in uh, jargon of, um, you're, you're exclusive. You're, you should be inclusive. You should be pluralistic. No. If I look out someone, and you look out someone, and they are egregiously sinning against God, and you just say, no, that, that's not sin. You just have the wrong standard. That's not mercy. That's, in fact, cruelty. So what mercy in the Old Testament is related to the worm for the womb of a mother. Now I know what I did. I changed the PowerPoint, and I got my old one on here. It even has a misspelled word in there. So if, if this gets a little out of whack, um, I pulled up the wrong one. I'm not going to change it at the last minute. But mercy is related to the word rahem, is related to the word for the womb of a mother, racham. And the reason for that is a mother's love for a nursing baby. In other words, mercy denotes real affections, tender yearnings that result in help for a helpless person. It's not just look out and see the miserable condition and feel, have some affection for it. You have to do something about it. Probably the easiest way to, in my opinion, is to know what a merciful person is. Let's Let's talk about what an unmerciful person is. Psalm 109, Psalm 109 is one of the imprecatory psalms. And, and um, if, if you'll turn there quickly, this is one that often we, we look at that and we say, how, how could uh, uh, the psalmist David pray in this prayer for unbelievers. Well, if you look at verse 4, in return for my love, they accuse me. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 24, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has been gaunt with no fat. In other words, he's praying for them, and yet they are returning evil for his good. But he has a, a in Verse 16, here's a description of an unmerciful person. He did not remember to show kindness or mercy here, but did what? Pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He didn't delight in blessing, may it be far from him. So a unmerciful person in the Bible is actually the op is synonymous with a cruel person. We go to Proverbs. The righteous person, a person who is seeking to have his life in conformity with the divine standard, has regard for the life of his beast, his behemoth. In other words, that's often four-footed animals. Could be a horse, for uh, a cow, a dog, a cat. But the compassion of the wicked is cruel. 
In other words, that's a sarcastic comment by the uh, writer of the Proverbs there, Solomon. Saying that a, a wicked person has compassion and it is true. Deceived about their true affections, they knowingly and willingly, in an unrelenting and insensitive way, inflict pain not only on animals, but by, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater, even on those who are made in the image of God. If a wicked person is cruel to animals, then how will he treat those made in the image of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's certainly had his understanding of mercy sharpened by the Holocaust, says that the bad deeds of a good person are better than the good deeds of the wicked. We are to treat God's creatures with kind, compassionate care, not mistreat them. And when we do that, we are actually, as an unmerciful person, is to despise their creator. But probably the, um, well, Nabal, the foolish scoundrel in 1 Samuel 25, David and his men protected, and yet when he went to them, Nabal says, why, why, why should I give you anything that belongs to me? And if it wasn't for his wife, uh, he would have perished. But the Babylonians, Jeremiah 6, other places in Jeremiah, we could use the Assyrians as another example. They seize bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Turn to Luke chapter 16, which certainly highlights what it means to be unmerciful. Verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades he was in torment, and he lifted up his eyes and he called out, and what does he ask for? Mercy! Have mercy upon me! And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. And what's the answer now? The answer is no, he will receive no mercy. This will be eternal torment. This should, this should help me in my compassion toward unbelievers to recognize and help me in gentle boldness to proclaim to them, if you do not repent of your sin, this is what uh, awaits you. Turn, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and, and look to him. James says it this way. Chapter 2, I think it's verse 13. Mercy rejoices against judgment, but for the one 
who has had no mercy, there will be no mercy in judgment. So we're to be a merciful people, not an unmerciful people. And probably the greatest reason for that is the revelation of a gracious, merciful, patient God in Christ and at Sinai. We'll start with Sinai first. I go back to that question. Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion, that's mercy, on whom I will show compassion. So he had Moses go over, hide in the cleft of the rock. He passed by, and here's what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing in chesed, that word covenantal loyalty and truth, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We have to go down to the New Testament to find out what does that mean he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished? Then how will he leave anyone to stand before him? Isaiah 53, as we move forward, begin to get clearer and clearer until we come to the person of Christ and see the cross. This truth, these two in particular, the Lord God of heaven is merciful, compassionate, and full of grace. That theme is woven throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And sometimes we don't like that truth. Ask Jonah. Jonah was commissioned to go to the cruel Assyrians and... uh, went the opposite direction, (laughs) headed out to Tarshish, and uh, the Lord uh, created a storm. Finally, he acknowledged, I'm the cause, throw me overboard. The pagan sailors didn't want to do that, but at that point, they threw him overboard, and God had created a great fish to swallow Jonah, and eventually to toss him back up on the land. And so he finally does this time. He goes, he goes. And what happens? He proclaims that Nineveh, if you don't repent, you're going to be overthrown. And they repented. And so what did Jonah do about it? He got angry (laughs) that, God, I knew it. You were going to have compassion on these people. That's why I didn't want to go. And so... Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Does that that truth about the revelation of a gracious and merciful God move us to show compassion, to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost? Watch how this is emphasized when we come down to the New Testament and a gracious 
and merciful God revealed in Jesus Christ. John 1, 17 through 18, grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is like? The same gracious, compassionate God has now taken on human form in the incarnation, but he is no different in his character than the God of the Old Testament. This is a God, and he is gracious and merciful. Now, watch how this theme is woven in Luke chapter 1. Mary is singing her song of praise, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. And what does she talk about? He is mighty who has done great things for me. Holy is his name and his mercy. There it is, verse 50, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now we come to Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. Her neighbors and relatives heard that she had borne a son, that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Verse 72. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers. In other words, all, those, all that emphasis on grace and mercy, now with the coming of Christ, it's revealed to be in human form and to show us what grace and mercy looks like. So we follow through with the revelation of a gracious and merciful God in Christ. We see it physically when... Uh, on a number of occasions, I just chose out the one on two blind men on Jericho. And what were they crying out? They're crying out, have mercy on us, O God. And he says, what do you want me to do? They said, we want to receive our sight. And we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion or mercy, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. There's mercy in the spirit realm of darkness, perhaps most striking is the Gentile woman, not a Jewish woman, had a demon-possessed daughter. She cried out, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Have mercy on me, O Lord. We see the same God in the Old Testament, and he looks out, and he has compassion. He feels pity. He is moved with compassion for those in distress, and he does something about it. He cast out the demons. Her daughter was healed at once. Matthew 14, 14, it's revealed in all four Gospels. Jesus looked out. He saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He took five loaves and two little fish and fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. So God is merciful. He's compassionate to guilty sinners. We intuitively, with our sin, we kind of think of, is, is God really going to hear me? 
one of the first things after I became uh, a believer there and was attending the University of Illinois, was attending a church, they had a fisherman's club and we'd go fishing, fishing for men. And they said, we're gonna go down to the rescue missions. I was told you might find your father down there. My father was a drunkard. The men don't smell good. And they're proud and they're arrogant. They said, prepare a message. I said, me? I said, yes, you. So I prepared one, a little nervous, got up, started to speak of the gospel, and two guys got in a fight, two drunks, right, right, right out there. And so they had to call in uh, a couple of men and, and separate them, and I'm standing up there and going, now what do I do? And he looks at me and goes, okay, keep on going, keep on going compassionate and merciful in a situation when you look out and sometimes the feeling isn't there. But we still have a responsibility to be compassionate. But Jesus was perfect in his compassion and his mercy towards guilty sinners. Remember the publican, the tax collector, and the Pharisee? The Pharisee, at least that particular one, wanted to justify himself before God and Five times he prayed, I, 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 here's what I like. Well, here's what I am like. And the despised tax collector simply said, have mercy. It's really the word for be propitious to me. Didn't even look to heaven. Propitiation is what he wanted. He wanted a satisfaction of the wrath of God. He understood what he was under. So there are, the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. Those who try and put a distinction between the two and that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. The God of the Old Testament is a compassionate God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. And the God of the New Testament, the same one revealed in Jesus Christ. He is also a God of wrath, but the day Today is a day of salvation if you will believe upon him. He's gracious and merciful and patient. But his patience will come to an end. So believe upon him, look upon him. We look at the recipients of mercy, some both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Lot, Genesis 19.15 the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. He didn't want to leave. He, he had grown affectionate for the, for the city. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And we have this comment, The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. David, the last words we have about David, First and Second Samuel are really one book in Hebrew, but Second Samuel chapter 24, remember what David did? He wasn't supposed to number 
the Israelites, and he did it. And afterwards, now uh, God is going to discipline David. And he said, Here's, here, so Gad the prophet came to him. He said, you have options here. Shall three years of famine come to you? Or will you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or will be there three days of pestilence, a plague in your land? Now consider and decide one answer. I shall return to him who sent me. Do you remember what David said? Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercy is great. His mercy is great. And that too was a merciful uh, we talked about the tax collector. How about blind sinners? What are we described like? Um, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as Jerry prayed this morning. We all formerly lived in the desires of the flesh, indulging our desires of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's one of the great buts in the Bible. But God, who is rich, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. You have that right around. Dead in transgressions and sins, rich in mercy, reminding us again of dead in, tre in trespasses and sins. God is a God of mercy, of grace, and of compassion. Romans chapter 9, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy that had prepared beforehand for his glory, even us not among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So when we think of blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy, what kind of a merciful person are we? God has saved us. He has had compassion upon us. And we may have been in the same condition that God spoke to, uh, had there in the letter of the seven churches. Remember, at Laodicea, you, you, are, you, are, you are blind, you are miserable, you are wretched, and you say, I, I have no need. It is when we recognize and confess our miserable condition before God that he has mercy upon us from the human aspect. And so there are demands for God's people to be merciful. Luke chapter 6, verse 36, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Second Corinthians 4, 1, since we have this ministry, Paul says, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 
And God may bring certain circumstances into your life, into your background, um, that particularly enables you to have compassion and mercy because you are in that difficulty. You are in that strait. And so as you see other people in the straight, same difficulty, God may have designed you by what you have passed through providentially to extend compassion and mercy in a greater way to that uh, uh, someone who is going through the same difficulties. Jude 20, the doxology. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's still mercy to be poured upon us. There will be grace poured upon us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And on some have compassion, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And there is an assurance for God's merciful people that we will be shown mercy. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Judgment will be merciless without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I looked it up in the hymn book, and we don't have it in our, in our current one. Um, sometimes the title of this hymn is called the mercy seat, and sometimes it's called From Every Stormy Wind That Blows. It was written by Hughes Style in 1831. From every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm, a sure retreat. Tis found beneath the mercy seat. Oh, whither could we flee for aid when tempted, desolate, dismayed, or how the host of hell defeat had suffering saints no mercy seat. Oh, may my hand forget its skill, my tongue lies silent, cold, and still. This bounding heart forget to beat if I forget the mercy seat. Do you remember the mercy seat in the Old Testament? It's used 23 times, especially in Exodus and Leviticus. And here, there's a, there's a gold lid, and there's two cherubim with their, with their wings over there, and that is the mercy seat, the place of propitiation, um, where the blood was put. Mercy seat, and Christ is our mercy seat. He's our place of propitiation where the wrath of God is satisfied. Richard Crenshaw wrote a poem on the Lucan passage with the Pharisee and the tax collector. He says, two went to pray, or rather say. One went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, 
the other to the altar's God. We go to receive grace and mercy, and we go to a propitiatory God who has had mercy upon guilty sinners. I ask myself and I ask you, am I a merciful person? My heart, even as a believer, can be self-deceived. So uh, if I tell myself, how would I know if I'm a merciful person? What, what does a merciful person look like? Well, we just looked at what a merciful person looks like. He has compassion on those in distress. We should have compassion and pity for those in physical distress as a result of we have a bond with all humanity, having been created in the image of God, but we should have a special mercy and compassion that an unbeliever cannot express because he has never received the mercy of God. There is a gift of mercy in Romans chapter 12 and verse uh, 6, in the body of Christ, God sovereignly gives different spiritual gifts. Charismata, spiritual gifts given at salvation. They're not a natural ability. Paul mentioned seven of them. And the last one is the gift of mercy. Showing, showing mercy to do this with, with cheerfulness flowing from a heart free of hypocrisy. And you may say, well, I, I don't think I have the gift of mercy. Whether you have that particular gift or not, we all have a responsibility as a result of what we have received in Jesus Christ to be a merciful peace people toward others. How do you become a a merciful person? Well, first of all, you need to respond to the message of the gospel. You respond to the imperative of Jesus himself. Repent and turn from your sin. And from the aspect of divine sovereignty, God takes out the heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh, and with that comes the ability and desire to show mercy. Remember what we have received in Jesus Christ. Habakkuk says it this way, in wrath, Remember mercy. And we have a great throne of grace. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And it says he is a compassionate high priest. And so we are admonished to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Now, if you need mercy, what does this say about me? I'm still in a condition of distress. Sometimes it's my own sin, and I, and I look at it. Will I ever get past this sinful habit, this sinful thought, this sinful motive in my, in my life? Will I ever grow in truth and grace? And so what do I do? I come before a compassionate God who has mercy for me in my distress and find grace to help in time of need. 
But the ultimate reason then, looking around to others, I not only need mercy, you're going to need mercy and grace until you arrive home to heaven. But we need to be a merciful people, a forgiving people, a patient people, and the ultimate reason is be merciful. Luke, the version there of the Beatitudes, just as your Father is merciful. Augustine says, if I weep for that body from which the soul is departed, how should I weep for that soul from which God has departed? Soul mercy is in advising and exhorting sinners. Tell them what condition they are in, warn them of the dangers. They're on the verge of the bottomless pit. If, get, if death gives them a nudge, they fall in. And soul mercy is in praying for others and then caring for others in distress. If you have repented of your sin and trusted Jesus Christ, you are a merciful person. But we should cultivate that merciful attitude and demonstrate it towards others.